This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, Scattered throughout this fall, I'm uh, teaching a mini-series where we are looking at three uh, very messy issues uh, that affect our relationships, our homes, our communities, ourselves, that often go unaddressed. Issues that, in our sin, we'd like to keep tucked away and off the radar and hidden over there in the dark. We don't want to recognize their presence, even though these issues are unavoidable and are actually many times obvious to many other people around us. And the second elephant in this series that I want us to consider is the issue of addictions. Addictions. And before, you know, we're tempted to maybe, you know, start kind of looking around and going, I wonder who might be struggling with this issue. Uh, Before we do that, let's realize that 40.3 million Americans struggled with addiction in 2020. 40.3 million. That's like one in every 10 people. So let's not be so maybe naive or so proud as to assume that it isn't affecting us, ourselves, or our family, or our close friends. And yes, church, this issue, as we address it, this issue is a sensitive and this is a difficult topic for many, a topic that is so rife with hurt and pain and hopelessness. Just a general feeling of, of, of just being stuck, not able to move or go anywhere. That, that oftentimes we can become tempted to think that, that this is an elephant that cannot be moved out. It can't go anywhere. It, it tends to be a problem that we've actually given up on addressing. Uh, many times it's a problem where we fear that if we do, if we try, we will just simply be stampeded for our trouble. And while I don't know where you know, each one of uh, you might be at personally this morning with this very prevalent issue, I don't want us to get caught up there. I, I don't want us to get fixated on our own experience, but on our creator. Uh, because, and perhaps this is contrary to common belief, uh, the Bible does address the issue of substance addictions. It does so primarily through the lenses of drunkenness. If you want to look more on that specific issue, you can look back at my sermon on alcohol in February of 2021. Um, But the word drunkenness in the Bible refers to this idea of overflowing with wine. It entails giving that substance a place of dominating influence over you. Dominating influence. And this, is, this is where the wine is doing the talking. This is where the, the, the wine is shaping you know, how you talk and how you walk and how you think about different 
things in the scriptures give a prohibition against this kind of activity in places like Ephesians 5.18 or 1 Corinthians 6.12 or Galatians 5.20-21 and so on and so forth. And, and so if, if, if the Christian is someone who's, who's then giving themselves over and over again to this kind of activity, whether it's through, you know, wild partying that's becoming wildly more acceptable or through quiet, solitary abdication, um, drunkenness then can quickly become a besetting sin in someone's life, as in a sin that's, that's being repeated again and again and again. And it's just becoming more and more a part of their daily experience and what we frequently then call a substance addiction. To be clear, whether or not somebody is more prone to engaging in an addiction or not doesn't change that prohibition. Uh, we live in a day and age in which we are Uh, being subtly tempted to move from a problem being like a disease to a problem being a disease. And eventually to, well, that's just the way that this person was born, so we need to accept that. And then finally, that their way of living is not to just be accepted or tolerated, it is to be nurtured. And so we need to be careful about that because biblically, just because we are all born with a bent to sin, and just because some of us may have been born or raised in a way that shaped us to being very prone uh, to give in to certain kinds of sins, in this case, addictions, it still doesn't determine, it doesn't define, it doesn't excuse, it doesn't cause or remove our decisions or our responsibility for them. It does matter if somebody is more prone. But, and here's the thing, don't miss this, trying to completely remove someone's responsibility is to hide from their inherent dignity as an image bearer of God. It is hiding from how God has actually shaped this person. And the Bible, mercifully, for everyone's sake, doesn't do that. And it maintains this stance, not with a desire to heap uh, onto somebody a burden, a greater burden, but actually to reveal lovingly the burden that someone is already struggling under, that is already present, to reveal a holistic route of escape. You cannot do it any other way. Writing on this issue, Dr. Ed Welch, who's been of great help to me when it comes to this topic, writes, the word disease can be used literally or metaphorically. In its literal or more technical sense, it is a diagnosable condition with a primary physical cause. For example, diabetes is a disease caused by a deficiency of, uh, of usable insulin. At present, it can be treated but not cured. As with most diseases, the patient's behavior has a significant effect on the progress of the disease. But if there is a cure, it is external to the patient. A diabetic cannot heal himself. If we describe disease this way, addictions do not fit the definition. With addictions, the cure must come from within. The addict must make choices to reject, defeat, and forsake his addiction, a course of action that would be insufficient to cure someone of breast cancer, 
epilepsy, or diabetes. Having said this, I would affirm that at the deepest level, we must all rely on God, something outside of ourselves for all things. But relying on God or other people does not mean that we have a physical disease. AA itself states that alcoholism is largely a spiritual disease requiring spiritual healing. This morning, my hope is to not just point out what this issue was wrong, what is dangerous, but to consider some counsel for this spiritual disease here and the direction of a deeper healing. Because, friend, if this elephant is ever going to start to get moving in your world, we need to stop waiting around for some silver bullet or, in this case, some silver pill and instead cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God, not just with one action, but to engage with other people in many disciplines that God uses to reshape the affections and the beliefs of our hearts. Now, if we've created some clarity around our direction for this morning, for addressing this issue, then I want to counsel us on some starting steps in this marathon of a journey by considering the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, turn there with me. We're going to look at the wisdom of this problem, uh, proverb in light of our problem. And the Proverbs offer us tremendous counsel for living in a tremendously messy world. And in chapter 9, we have a very helpful contrast for our situation through two invitations. In verse 1, we have our first invitation. It reads like this. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Now, in this passage, uh, we move here from wisdom being personified as a noble woman who is issuing an invitation to others to, to come down and, and, and to, to meet with her, to come and have dinner. And, and we're going to skip, though, from here. I want us to look at the second invitation, which is a parallel of polar opposites. And so in verse 13, we pick it back up and we read this. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house and she takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Who's ever simple? Let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he who does not know, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Shoal, the place of the dead. In this passage, we have two invitations. Two invitations to dinner, and they illustrate two ways of pursuing satisfaction. One that leads to life, and one that leads to death. Friends, what we, uh, what stands here as we look at it, at the heart of a spiritual disease is our desperate desire 
for satisfaction. At the heart of a spiritual disease is a desperate desire for satisfaction. And that satisfaction might be through pleasure, but it also might be through punishment. It might be through escaping. It might be through acceptance. If you, uh, if we look here with addiction, we can realize that it's one more example of the woman folly's invitation to find satisfaction. If you look uh, at her invitation through those eyes, you can see it. Addiction is oftentimes loud. It's oftentimes seductive, and yet it seems so simple, so simple. It, it leads somebody away from being productive and to taking a seat, and yet the seat that addiction takes is a seat of authority in our life. And as one looks back, you can probably realize that they weren't looking to become an addict. It found them. It invited them while they were simply on their way home. And that invitation wasn't so much of what it actually offered or how it actually tasted, but it was how it made them feel. It was, it, it was how it made you feel. But over time, now you feel less and less. And eventually, you won't feel anything at all. You might as well be a dead man walking. Do you see it, friends? Addiction is about twisting our pursuit of satisfaction. It is about twisting our pursuit of satisfaction. That's what these invitations are all about. But addiction, it takes a good desire for satisfaction, and it twists it, and it laces it, and it fills it so that it only leaves you emptier than when you started. And what first seemed so promising is now so controlling. Like Second Peter 2, 18 to 20 says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Over time, I've listened to this story over and over again, and maybe you have too. If you've spent time with somebody who was a parent, somebody who was a spouse, somebody who had a close friend who was an addict, you hear the same thread coming through their stories, loud and clear. Someone they loved started out just being enticed, invited, drawn towards something that was offering them some kind of freedom. And at first, it seemed no big deal. In fact, it probably to them seemed more satisfying than anything else. But now, now they're a slave to it. Rather than freeing them, it enslaved them. And these people who they love and they long for them to experience freedom again. In fact, they've, they've probably been somebody that has helped them get clean, get sober, quit for a while. They all know, though, that the bondage is an issue of the heart. And if that person does not keep their heart with all diligence, with the Lord's help, then they will likely end up dead. Addiction is about twisting 
our pursuit of satisfaction. You know, if, if that's you this morning, I want you to remember that you are not alone in that desire. God loves an addicted friend, an addicted parent, an addicted spouse, an addicted child more than you can ever imagine. And because of that reason, for that reason alone, as challenging as this issue is, there's still hope. And so then, how can we take some steps towards the untwisting of this pursuit? Remember, first of all, this is a marathon, not a sprint. This is a marathon, not a sprint. But let's take a closer look at each of these invitations to satisfaction. As, as we do, I want us to consider the counsel that each one offers. And let's first take a look at this first invitation, the invitation to life. As we look at it, there are three pieces of counsel with this invitation I want to point out. The first, in the first four verses of this invitation, we see that wisdom has built a perfectly uh, complete house, prepared a luxurious, masterfully decorated feast, and has sent out invitations to people who, don't miss this, are not like her. She's sent out invitations to people who are the opposite. She invites the simple, literally the gullible, unintelligent, or the stupid. Hopefully I don't get an email from my mom uh, for saying that word in church, but (laughs) think about it. That's who wisdom invites to this event. What does that mean for us considering this issue? It means that you are cared about. It means that in the midst of you being as gullible as can be, you are loved and that you need it. You need to be loved because, friend, you've been invited, so you're being loved. This is more important than actually it may seem at first glance. Remember when I served in Spokane, Washington for a number of years, I would encounter a lot of people dealing with addictions. It was a frequent occurrence there in a state that made a lot of different kinds of decisions. And I remember this one time just driving down the road in their downtown area and coming across this situation where this young man was trying to cross the road, but he was as high as a kite. And so he was just walking right into oncoming traffic. And it was obvious either this guy was going to get killed or he was going to get somebody else killed. And so I pulled over and got out and, and you know, yelled at the guy and, and got him to come over, you know, back onto the sidewalk. And, and I knew that, you know, somebody by now had called the police, you know, more than likely. And they were on their way. And, and so I just made it my goal to just keep talking to this guy, keep him out of the street until they arrived. And as I'm talking with this guy, he just starts saying all, all kinds of stuff. And he starts talking about how much his dad hates his guts on the street corner. Now listen, I don't know if this guy knew up from down. I don't know. But I do know that it is common for a lot of addicts to fall for this kind of a lie. A lie that, as another pastor puts it, I am unworthy to be loved and I deserve to be punished. That is a common lie among addicts. I am unworthy to be loved and deserve to be punished. And church, someone in addiction who is in need of a deeper healing needs to be loved. They need to receive it. 
We need to show it, but not a weak, flimsy, uh, do-whatever-you-want kind of love, a love that's defined by God in places like 1 Corinthians 13, a love that pursues what's best for that person and those around them, which means that we have to be honest, be honest. Not only is that a quality of love, it is also part of the invitation of wisdom. In verse 4, we see that the price of admission to this luxurious dinner is admitting one's problem. If anyone wants to become wiser, they have to start by admitting their need for it, that they are more simple and gullible in life than they should be. In the passage, this honesty is the very first step in turning aside, which is a phrase that brings up the idea of repentance. For for the addict, this means that confessing the reality of their problem is an opportunity to turn on the lights and to reveal and expose the rest of this elephant that is in the room by saying something like, fine, I might as well tell you everything else is going on. Honesty might be, in fact, the biggest uh, challenge for someone in the midst of an addiction and in need of recovery. But each step, each step that someone takes towards being honest, who's in that spot, they are taking steps towards wisdom and towards repentance. And as painful as that honesty is, if we want to see a change, us who are on the other side need to calmly cheer each of those steps. As you do, you will begin to create space for them to belong or belong again. This is the invitation, too, that we need to see, the invitation to belong. Church, we have to create relational space for someone to belong who is allowing themselves to be loved and to be honest. This is wisdom's invitation. In fact, in verse 6, to leave your simple ways behind, right? Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight as walking in the way of wisdom. And church, we have to continually cultivate a gospel culture that says that the broken can belong here, individually and corporately. Ray Ortland describing a gospel culture that doesn't make things safe for sin, but makes things safe for sinners, says on Sunday, we walk into a new kind of community where we discover an environment of grace in Christ alone. It's so refreshing. Sinners like us can breathe again. It's as if God simply changes everyone's topic of conversation from what's wrong with us, which is plenty, to what is right with Christ, which is endless. He replaces our negativity, finger-pointing, self-hatred with the good news of his grace for the undeserving. Together, this is the wisdom. This This is wisdom's invitation to genuine and deep satisfaction that leads to life. This is the counsel of being loved, being honest, and belonging in gospel culture that begins to untwist the pursuit of satisfaction and to offer greater joy, deeper healing as we live into them. What about the second invitation, though? The invitation to death. Now, wouldn't it be nice if every substance addiction came with a label on the bottle that explained this? But they don't. I remember a scene in a film on addictions that that depicted this so clearly, I thought. 
In the scene, you have a, a young man who's, who's chasing uh, what appears to be a beautiful woman in a white dress through a rainforest. And try as he might, he can't ever seem to quite get a glimpse of her face. As this seductive search goes on and on and on until the moment that he corners her, uh, just as he begins to turn her uh, face towards himself for a kiss, a horrific change occurs, and you see that this is, in fact, the face of a corpse. That's addiction. That's the invitation to satisfaction that is like addictions. It doesn't show up dressed for a funeral. Addictions show up dressed for fun, or at least relief after a long day of work. But it comes at a cost. It, it, it's like a dinner bill that, you know, you didn't get a menu for. It just arrives at the end of the meal after a little fun has been had. As we look at this invitation, we see three more pieces of counsel that we need to pay attention to. And the first is to be humble. Because look, we're all getting the invitation. It goes out to everybody. We are all susceptible We all have ways of pursuing satisfaction that can be twisted. And if we are falling or have already fallen for this invitation, recognize it for what it is and for what it is becoming. As we saw in verse 15, addictions that calls out to everyone, anyone passing by, no matter where they live, what they drive, where they attend church, So at the end of the day, the only discriminating factor with addictions is who is humble enough to recognize their own weakness, to turn aside to wisdom. For an addict, this means getting help and then having the humility to keep in touch with others who can support them, who can support us as we move forward. People that understand, people that care. And those choices are choices that are far more about humility than they are ever about time management. The second thing, then, that we need to learn from this invitation is to be choosy. Be choosy. Friends, the reason why the scriptures are presenting both of these invitations is to help us who are weak and gullible to have discernment about the invitations that we listen to so that we can be choosy. And listen, the route to addiction does not start when someone finally buys something. No, it starts when they start listening to the wrong invitation. And little by little, they start veering off course. That's how it starts. And so we need to be choosy about the voices and about the ads about the shows, and about the influencers, and the pictures, and the heroes, and so on and so forth, that we are listening to. Because anybody can fall for this loud, seductive, and yet so simple invitation to death, which leads then to our last piece of counsel. Beware. Beware. It has often been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Addictions do not play fair. And as illustrated in this passage, it will exact and a cost from you and everyone else around you that you never saw coming. So beware. It is nothing to mess with. But once you have, you have to now engage in a life and death struggle with your addiction. 
It must be declared war on. It must be treated this way. A struggle that may encompass large portions of your life. It may encompass the rest of it. But you must struggle. And there is hope in the struggle. Because, friend, although an addiction will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay, recognize that the price that wisdom paid to win us back, to call us to dinner, to offer us a satisfaction for our souls, it was a cost that was far higher. It was the costliest price that one could pay. See, when we were invited to dinner, did we catch the invitation to the bread and to the cup and to the dinner that this dinner is pointing and looking forward to? Because it would be Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, as he's called in the New Testament, who would later invite his disciples to dinner. And around the table, he would offer them to partake of the bread and of his wine, the symbols of the new covenant in his blood, the costliest dinner church that we could ever enjoy, and the offering of satisfaction that we could never earn was paid for by Jesus Christ at the cross. And so, friends, we stand here in the council of this passage, dealing with a spiritual disease of deep proportions. And we take hope because we have been invited to the table. And it is the table set by Jesus Christ. Let's pray about that. Lord, we recognize Lord, we recognize that we are the gullible ones. We recognize that we are the weak ones. We are the ones who don't bother considering where an invitation will take us. And yet you, Lord, in your grace and in your mercy, in your word, has shown us the reality of things. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not seek to conform the the reality of your word to what we want, but that we would look to humble ourselves and have you conform us to the reality that you want. Lord, may we be pressed into the image of Christ in this area of our satisfaction. May we consider the fact that we are loved, that we are invited to be honest, that we are called to be humble, that we have a place to belong here. And Lord, we pray in particular this morning for those of us who have an elephant in their heart of addiction, but are hiding it and attempting to keep it in the dark. Lord, I pray this morning that through the love and care of your son, Jesus Christ, that you may give those in our midst that have that the courage to begin to be honest, to begin to take steps in this marathon of a journey, that you would aid them in that and that they would sense your presence. I pray that in your name. Amen.